Thank you, Greg and worship team. Really appreciate your leadership and your service to us. And I'd like to welcome you to our first part of a seven-part series we're calling Engendered Species. Welcome to you who are here this morning and to those who are listening online later. We thank you for listening online later and being a part of this conversation here at Grace Point Church. For those of you who are sitting here, you may be thinking, uh, what are we getting into in the new year? And uh, fear not, I wonder the same thing. Uh, We are beginning a, a new series around the issues of gender identity and what the Bible has to say about that. Now, I hope in this time that we can share together to bring some clarity around what it is that the Bible might have to say for us on this issue and also to speak to what actually is going on in the world around us related to this issue of gender identity. Now, I hope you can see what I've done with the series title, Engendered Species, and I hope the double meaning of that has hit you because I believe, putting my cards on the table, that we're living in a period of time in history where gender identity is going to become potentially, or if some will have their way, will become function much like um, endangered species where some would prefer that we eliminate all distinctions between gender. However, I believe that God, the creator of the universe and creator of humanity, has actually engendered us. He actually has given us or infused into us gender as a part of our basic humanity and thus the crux and thus the struggle engendered species rediscovering the beauty of God's design. Now, at the beginning, let me say this. It is very possible that I will offend some of you here during this series. In fact, it may be likely that I will do that. Um, If you're listening online and you're not here, one of the reasons might be because you don't know if you really want to handle being alive in this environment, but you're curious as to what is being said, and I get that, and it's possible I may offend you. Let me assure you, I have no desire to offend. I don't wake up and think, who can I tick off today? That's just not my desire. It's not my interest in that. And let me also say this, um, speaking the truth in love is difficult. It's easy to speak the truth and it's easy to speak in love, but it's difficult to do both at the same time. Right? It, it, it's just hard, and that's my hope during this entire series. And if I can add one more thing to my opening here, let me say this, that the church has not handled this issue awesomely. I think I just used incorrect grammar, all right? point is, there are certain people, or maybe institutions, in time, in certain moments, who have really risen to the occasion and shined. And we all look at them with honor and respect. For example, take Rudy Giuliani in post-9-11 New York. In that moment, as the mayor of New York, he shined in his leadership. And most Americans will acknowledge that and respect the man for that moment. He stood up and he led well in that moment. That was his moment and he took it. The church on the issue of gender identity is not like that. Uh, We may want to be like that, but that is not our reputation in the world. And I'm going to get to that later on. So I need to acknowledge from the, the front end that our reputation is not good on this issue in the world in which we live, in the world which does not value the Bible as its authority or Jesus as its Savior. And even within the church. 
particularly among millennials within the church, our reputation as a church is just not good on this issue. So I want to acknowledge that. So I'm, I'm aware of these, and we want to still speak into it. Why? Because this issue is so prevalent, and it goes so far that if we as a church do not speak to it, we lose this moment, we lose this space in space-time history to speak to something very profound about our basic identity, about how we even function together as men and women, how we even relate together as husbands and wives, as children, as bosses, as co-workers, as people of faith. How do we even engage a world like this on this issue that is so profound and so prevalent? How do we even do this? The questions are many for the Christian and even for the non-Christian as well. So this morning, what I'd like to do is simply introduce the issue. And so at the end of this message, you may think, what was that? The answer is, that was an introduction. Okay? I, I would love to cram everything into 35 minutes, but I can't do it. I'm going to introduce. This morning, what I hope to accomplish is laying out where we are culturally on this issue. Then I want to ask a key question that I think is the kingpin behind all of this. This, I think, is the issue that we will wrestle with moving forward. I'm going to introduce that. And then finally, I want to talk at the end for just a couple minutes how we should approach this even further. So that's where I want to go this morning. All right. So to begin this series talking about where we are culturally, just to frame it up so we're all on the same page, about what's happening in our world. Many of you know these stories. Some of you may not be aware of the extent of them, but I just want to share a few stories for you to understand where we land. Uh, Many of you know, um, in April of 2015, Bruce Jenner declared himself to be a woman. Bruce Jenner, in the 1970s, became a U.S. gold medalist in the decathlon. As a man, at that time, as he would call himself, he biologically was wired to beat every other man on the planet who competed in the decathlon discipline in that moment in time. He was the gold medalist in the decathlon. Now, years later, in April of 2015, just this past year, Bruce Jenner declares that he's a woman. In, in July of 2015, on the cover of Vanity Fair, he changes his name to Caitlyn Jenner. And what happens is this. ESPN declares him Sportsman of the Year for this declaration. Um, USA 100 or whatever they are, excuse me, Top 100 declare him Newsmaker of the Year. He is Time Magazine's runner-up to Person of the Year because he declares himself to be Caitlin instead. In case you wonder how our culture at large wants to embrace the movement of losing gender distinctions or creating greater gender fluidity, we need to look almost no further than Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner, but we will look further because it goes further. In November of 2015, just this past year, by a narrow defeat, but certainly by a defeat, there was a small victory on the side of gender distinction or conservative viewpoint, which I would embrace. In Houston, Mayor Annabelle Smith uh, excuse me, Anise Parker, pardon me, Anise Parker, Houston mayor, presented a bill that is just known as the bathroom bill in 2014. Some of you may be aware of that. As an uh, openly gay mayor of Houston area, her proposition was that all bathrooms should be available to any gender just based on how you identify. 
And so you, if you're a biologically born male, but you're identifying as a female, you can use the women's bathroom in Houston. And this bill was presented and began to be put in motion. Pastors in Houston resisted that, brought a little coalition together, pushed back. There was legal response to that, and it finally failed in the court system in Houston, but not without a great fight, and not without um, Anise Smith pushing for subpoenaing, subpoenaing the sermons of the pastors who were pushing against her. Basically saying, we're going to push on you if you're going to push on us. I'm willing to fight on this issue. Her point is, gender equality means that no matter how you talk about yourself, you should be able to use any public restroom that you have. In 2014, the same time this bill was coming out, a college, Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, just north of us, began reviewing the question of who should we admit into our school. Mount Holyoke is a traditionally women's-only college, which is all fine and good, but when you begin to find yourself in a world where you wonder, what is a woman? You have to ask the question, who can come into our college? And so Mount Holyoke set out a process of reviewing who should be admitted to the college. Should Caitlyn Jenner be admitted to Mount Holyoke? Because she's now a woman, or is she? And so they had to wrestle with this issue. And here's what they said. Traditionally, women's only college in 2015 came out with this, and this is on their website. The question is this, is Mount Holyoke College still a women's college? Listen to their answer. Yes, Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission as a women's college. Yet, we recognize that what it means to be a woman is not static. Traditional binaries around who counts as a man or a woman are being challenged by those whose gender identity does not conform to their biology. Those bringing forth these challenges recognize that such categorization is not independent of political and social ideologies. Just as early feminists argued that the reduction of women to their biological functions was a foundation for women's oppression. We must acknowledge that gender identity is not reducible to the body. Instead, we must look at identity in terms of, this is their definition, instead, we must look at identity in terms of the external context in which the individual is situated. It is this positionality that biological and trans women share, and it is this positionality that is relevant when women's colleges open their gates for those aspiring to live, learn, and thrive within a community of women. Now, if that's confusing to you, it should be. Trust me, I don't play this card much. Trust me, I'm a doctor. But this seemed right to say, okay. Listen, that is confusing. It is, it is very confusing. The language is confusing, and when it's confusing, we wonder, wow, that must seem so smart. Man, they must be really smart people. They figured something out. No, it's just confusing. It's meant to be. All right. So they go, they go further. They ask on their website, can you clarify who is female or who identifies as a woman? In other words, okay, who can apply for admission to Mount Holyoke? And here's their answer. And they have, they have seven categories. You can apply if you're academically eligible. You can apply and be accepted if you're biologically born female and identify as a woman if you're biologically born female and identify as a man, if you're biologically born female but identify as other or they or they, 
that's a pronoun that some in this movement are trying to create to replace he or she is the letter Z and then E. Biologically born female does not identify as either woman or man. Biologically born male, but identifies as a woman. Biologically born male, but identifies as either they or they, and when other or they includes woman. And finally, biologically born both male and female, with both male and female anatomy, intersex, identifies as a woman. You can go to Mount Holyoke. And here's who cannot go to Mount Holyoke. They say the following academically qualified students cannot apply for admission consideration. Biologically born male identifies as a man. That's it. Everybody else in all those categories can go to Mount Holyoke. Now, if you think that this world is changing quickly in which we live, it is. It is happening very quickly. Seth Mc... Uh, what's his name? Uh, McDowell. Seth Mc, Sean McDowell, excuse me, and John Stone Street wrote a book called Same-Sex Marriage. It was published in 2014. That is not a long time ago. And here's what they said in there. They, they quoted these stats. In 1996... In 1996, 27% of the people in the United States supported same-sex marriage. In 1996, 27% of the people in the United States supported same-sex marriage. You may remember, if you were alive at that time and you were an adult and paid attention to the world at all in the United States, that President Bill Clinton in that year signed the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. And essentially, that instructed all aspects of the federal government to recognize marriage is between a man and a woman. Past. Doma. Great. We're set. 1996. In 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Section 3 of Doma as being unconstitutional, and public approval of same-sex marriage jumped to 53%. 53% of the population, including, get this, this is very important, including of the... 18 to 29-year-olds in 2013, 73% of 18 to 29-year-olds in 2013 believe same-sex marriage was fine. No issues with it whatsoever. That's a big deal. That is a big change from 1996. I don't know of any other major sweeping sociological change and affirmation that happened so quickly in our history as this. We can all, as Americans, get on board if someone attacks us, you know, if we're you know, instigated in some way or agitated in some way, we can kind of get on board for a season with a response to that. But this is a moral revolution. This is a social revolution that happened seemingly quietly in just a few years. In 2014, as they were finishing their book, they said this, that in 2014, 83% of voters believe that same-sex marriage will be legal across the United States in, listen to this, five to ten years. The best pundits were saying in five to ten years, same-sex marriage will be happening. In 2015, the Supreme Court declared same-sex marriage a legal right in the United States of America in June. Didn't even take five or ten years. Took less than a year from the publishing of this book. If you think this is happening quickly, it is. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, we have flipped the tables. In the early 1970s, homosexuality used to be clinically defined as a mental illness, believe it or not. In fact, homosexuality was the problem. Now, Check out the flip. Now homophobia is the problem, not homosexuality. 
You used to be in the corner if you were homosexual. Now you're in the corner if you're homophobic. It is completely flipped in just a matter of a few years within the United States. If you think it's happened quickly, it has. Now, if we think this is a big picture problem, national state problem, it isn't. Without doing any research whatsoever, and just passively minding my own business, so to speak, I can tell you that there are at least three school districts right now in our community where parents or administrators have come to me and said, hey, I have an issue. I have a kid who's a boy trying to become a girl. I have a girl trying to become a boy. I have these issues, and you most likely have run into this personally. I guarantee you, you will if you haven't. This is a local issue. How do we respond? How does the school respond? How do administrators respond? How do parents help their kids know? What do I do about this? When someone that used to be Bruce is now Caitlin, and how do I respond? This is a very local issue. Let me say this. I have friends in this world. Yeah. I have people I went to school with, I graduated from Bible college with, who are in openly gay relationships now. So I, let me speak from a friend's standpoint. So as I speak, I'm speaking from that vantage point. I, I get this. I understand the relational piece. This is a big issue for all of us. And what I'd like to do is move into this next question, which I think is the kingpin of everything. This is where we're at contextually. And the question is, how do I handle this? What to do? And this next thing, I think, becomes the issue that we have to deal with where, where we stand. And it's a question that at the root of it is going to drive how we respond to this issue. And at the root of it, this question, depending on your age, you will answer this question differently, and you will have a greater struggle or a lesser struggle depending upon your age, to be quite honest. And it's this question right here. Is there a moral authority on this issue? Is there? Is there such a thing as right or wrong on this issue? And ultimately, we can talk about this all we want. But if we don't come back to this issue of authority, and is there such a thing on this issue, we're just going to yak back and forth forever. About my opinion, your opinion, your friends, my friends, their history, their history, tolerance, love, care. But we're just going to talk back and forth. It is going to come back to a question of authority. Of authority. Is there such a thing as moral authority? If you are mostly younger, in the millennial generation, let's say if you're in your 30s or younger, you're going to have a greater struggle, and it gets greater as you get younger from that. You may be in your 40s and higher and still have a struggle with this, I understand that. But if you're in your 30s or younger, uh, 20s especially, teenagers for, for sure, you're going to wrestle with, man, there's a relational component here I don't want to give up, and this is hard to say there's an authority on this. What am I going to do? You should know this. This is what um, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons said in their book, um, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. They, they wrote this. The gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christianity's reputation. It is also the dimension that most clearly demonstrates the unchristian faith to young people today surfacing a spate of negative perceptions. This is what unchristians, non-Christians will say about Christians on this issue. They are judgmental, bigoted, sheltered, right-wingers, hypocritical, insincere, and uncaring. 
In a massive survey of young adults, Kinnaman Alliance found that the millennials identified a posture of judgment against homosexuality to be the number one reason why millennials rejected or abandoned Christianity. Within the church, it is no different. Within the church, in a second project, Kinnaman Alliance looked at the lives of young people in the church and found a similar pattern. So many of these church-going young people expressed the concern that Christianity was simply too judgmental, especially on issues of sexual morality and homosexuality in particular. This is a major issue, especially if you are younger. It just is a part of that reality. Now, here's the thing that I'd like to talk about. There are times, I'd like to represent it this way. I'd like to represent it with these boxes, God's view and my view. There are times when it is easy to submit to the authority of God. There are times, if I have a, a view, my view on the bottom, if you will, in this frame, and God's view on the top, there are times when my view and God's view, like this image will do, come together. And I can submit to God's view because it makes sense. Just take an easy one. Let's go Old Testament commandments on you. Thou shalt not murder. Right? Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in the Bible, generally, you will say that's a good idea. Thou shalt not murder. And I can even put myself under that. My view lines up with God's view. Yeah, don't murder. That's a good idea. Man. That's a good idea. And in fact, I might even submit myself to that moral code, not be a Christian, but call myself a Christian because I live in a quote-unquote Christian nation that generally believes that is true. There are many times when my view and God's view will come together like that and it makes sense and it's easy to call yourself a Christian. But here's what we know. Anytime there becomes a gap between the two, and that gap returns, God's view and my view. As that gap widens, the struggle becomes greater. And here's why. Because you will lose respect among your peers if you hold a view that the culture in large does not hold. You will be ostracized. You will be looked down upon, you will be judged a bigot, judgmental, hypocritical, if you begin submitting to a view that other people around you do not hold. The struggle then becomes real and should become real. It should. Now, when things are difficult, <laughs> when things are difficult, we need to do more than understand what's true. Tune in with me for a minute if you've tuned out at all. Tune into this next statement because I think this is so true for this issue in particular. And Check this out. When God's views are hard to embrace, we must wrestle not only with what is true, but why it's good. When God's views are hard to embrace, you've got to wrestle with not only is this true, but why is it good? good. In other words, if I tell you in the Bible, the, God would prefer his view is that you save physical intimacy until marriage. Again, you don't even have to be a Bible person to generally know, yeah, that's probably what the Bible says. Even if I never read it, yeah, that's kind of, I bet what the church thinks. Okay, that's true. Now you start dating somebody. Things start rolling along well. You're getting closer and closer. You're like, man, I know that's true but it sure doesn't seem good right now. I mean, I'm just going to take care of that right now because that seems pretty good to do that. Let me lighten it for a moment and say this. In our family, this Christmas, we have gotten a ton, a ton of candy. Amazing. More than 
more than uh, Halloween stuff, we've just been overloaded with candy. Now, here's what I know. It is true that a balanced diet is the best thing. And I, I just confession, I, with Kevin up here, he already called me fat this morning, right? I, I mean, I, I have gained weight over the Christmas season because I'm, I'm eating too much. Now, here's what I know. It tastes good to eat the candy, but it is not, in that moment, I wrestle with, oh, it's true that I should have a balanced diet, but it seems good to kind of do what I want. When I wrestle with that, I'm wrestling with the twin issues of, am I going to submit to a moral authority? On this issue of gender, and the question you're going to have to ask, is there an authority on this issue? You are going to need to wrestle with, not only is it true, because you can probably answer that, you're going to have to answer the question, is it good? That is the question that most millennials will kick back on and say, no. I know it's in the Bible, and maybe I'll say it's true, but it does not seem good. Here's what the Bible says. I'm just going to jump right into the text of the Bible here in Leviticus 18, 22, and 20 for 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. In chapter 20 of Leviticus, it goes on to say that they should die. Now, that's what God says in Leviticus, right? Then in Romans, go to the New Testament. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans chapter 1, 26 and 27. You will not be surprised that this is what the Bible's view is. The issue isn't so much, is it true? The issue that you're going to wrestle with, is it good? Is it good? And, and how can a good God look at that couple over there, or those people over there who just want to be happy, and declare it bad, wrong, detestable? Is there a moral authority on this issue? Here's what we know about, about ourselves. We have to ask these two questions. Is it true and is it good? And then we have to go this way. We all want to pursue our own happiness. Remember that? We talked about this before. We all pursue our own happiness in everything. In fact, if you were to try to make this statement false, which if you're a critical thinker, you're doing right now, you're trying to be happy by proving this statement false. In fact, if you try to do anything related to this statement, you will end up trying to prove it. You will end up proving it in its own right. In other words, if you said, you know, I'm going to do something that will make me unhappy, then you will be happy that you're unhappy. Uh, it's just true. You, you just can't get around this reality that everything you do is designed for your own happiness. And even when you submit to an authority above yourself, you believe that that is the better thing to submit to, and so you're, quote-unquote, happy to do that. Now, you're not always happy, emotional happy, but it's driven by, what do I think is best? We are all driven in every decision that we make for our own happiness. And we've covered this a couple weeks ago in one of our teaching series, okay? So I'm coming back to this. It's very important right here. Here, let me continue. Pursuing the highest good will always result in our greatest happiness in the end. Remember that? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Pursuing our greatest good will always result in our greatest happiness in the end. If we know that eating the candy will make me fatter and I want to be lighter for when I ride my biker, okay, then I should stop eating the candy. 
pursuing the higher good will result in the greatest good. Even though there'll be a shallow good for eating that candy, there'll be a greater good if I don't. If I know what the highest good is, I will and should pursue that. But here's what we also covered. That I am not good at determining the highest good. Remember that? We had this conversation a couple weeks ago. And here's what we said. If you have ever made a decision that you regret, then you have proven the last point. If you have ever dated somebody that you wished you wouldn't have dated, if you ever bought a car that you wish you wouldn't have bought, if you ever made a money decision or a relational decision or a school decision or a work decision that you've regretted, here's what you have proven. That you can't be counted on to be infallible with decision-making. That as much as you want to pursue your best and the best of people around you, you can't be counted on to do it right all the time. Welcome to humanity. Neither can I. We're all moved to pursue our own happiness. Pursuing the highest good will result in our greatest happiness. And we're frankly not great at figuring out what the highest good is. She seemed like a great girl to date, and all of a sudden she's not. That seemed like a great car to buy, and all of a sudden, man, I'm in debt. What happened? I decided I should quit the job and get, take this one, and man, I was wrong. What gives? I thought that was the highest good. We're all going to have to choose to submit. If we want to pursue the highest good, we're going to have to choose to submit to some authority outside of ourselves. And this is where I go back to this statement in the very beginning of the Bible. It's a statement here. It's very simple. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Goes on to talk about God creating. In the beginning, God created. God made. So for me, I ask the question, if God created, if God made, why would he do that in the first place? If God created, if there is such a thing as a God, would he make humans whom he's interested in punishing? Is his desire for the evil of man? Is his desire to look at people that I know who are practicing a homosexual lifestyle and just cannot wait to line up to destroy them? Is that what the Creator God will do? Here's the point, listen. God is after human flourishing. The creator God of the world is after human flourishing. He's after the best of humanity, which is why he created in the first place. Think about the opposite. Can this statement be opposite and, and true? That God is against human flourishing. In the beginning, God created so he could destroy humans. You've got to be kidding me. It's just foolishness. In the beginning, God created ultimately for the flourishing of humanity. If that is God's interest for the best that can possibly be for humanity, and if I cannot determine with regularity the highest good because I make decisions that I regret and you make decisions you regret, I need to find somebody who can direct me to make decisions for the highest good and submit myself to a moral authority, even if the struggle is real between my view and his view. And when I ask the question of, is it good? Is it good? Not just is it true, but is it good? This is where I come back to. I have a creator God who has created humanity for the intent of human flourishing. And in that, 
he's given these directives. And I need to figure out how this is good and how to apply this in a good and wise way. God's interest is in all of human flourishing. Not just heterosexual human flourishing. All of human flourishing. Okay? I want to talk about a little bit of application right now. How do we even approach this series, speaking the truth in love? What does this look like? A couple things I'd like to encourage you on. Number one, we need to think about this in light of the gospel. We need to think about this entire issue in light of the gospel. Al Mohler in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, which was written in 2015. It's a good book for you to read if you care about this issue. He makes the point that when we all come of age, we are all sexual deviants. Welcome to the problem. In light of the gospel, let me be very clear that this series is not a series in which we should find ourselves um, kind of winking at one another after the service or telling jokes that are maybe a little bit off-color. Uh, you know, if those issues, if those thoughts go through our minds and our hearts, we, we really need to understand that we are destroying the gospel. Absolutely destroying it. That the gospel is a message of grace and forgiveness for the sinner of which we line up, number one. Regardless of our sexuality, the gospel drives us to human flourishing. It drives us back to the God who's created us. And it drives us through redemption, and forgiveness and grace and love for everyone, which is tough. Because here's the second question I ask on this issue, and that is this, can we change our reputation? Can we change our reputation? Here's our reputation written by McDowell and Stone Street. They said for this, For those who follow Christ, the standard is even higher. We are not only supposed to like others, but we're supposed to love others as we love ourselves. We shouldn't just tolerate other people. God commands us to care for them and actively promote their good. This is not, however, the Christian's current reputation. According to Kinnaman and Lyons, when you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who is an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay hater, homophobic. They took a survey of young Americans. The result was this. For over 90% of those surveyed, anti-homosexual accurately describes present-day Christians. I might not like that. I might wish that were different. It is what all the data is telling us. As a church, we've gotten this wrong. Our voice has not been heard in the right way. The gospel has been maligned and misunderstood. And the way in which we talk about this has not been overly helpful. Now, this morning is an introduction. And in this introduction... The one issue that I've wanted to stop and land on is the issue of, is there a moral authority on this issue? Is there? And if there is, is it true? And is it good? You're going to have to wrestle with that. The younger you are, the harder that struggle will be. Some of you, I bet, struggle with this privately. You're probably afraid to talk about it. 
You think your parents don't get it? Or too old, or certainly have their views? And you don't want to upset things because you're kind of confused yourself. Let me encourage you. Step into that conversation at home. Let me encourage you. Ask the questions. Wonder aloud with your parents, with your family, in a safe context. Speaking the truth in love. For next week, when we get together, we're going to take this series this direction. We're going to talk about the image of God and man. We're going to talk next week about gender identity being stripped away, more specifically, talk about the implications of that. The following weeks, we're actually going to try to define man and his roles and woman and her role. So if you're trying to figure out how to date a woman, right? Figure out, there we go. We're going to answer that for you. What is woman? What is man? We're going to help you solve that. All right. Now, this series is also meant to be interactive. So you may have seen along the way these um, hashtags up here, hashtag Grace Points. That's our um, ongoing kind of universal hashtag on social media. If thought comes to you, question, you can use that. We also have a hashtag just for the series, Engendered Species, hashtag Engendered Species. My email address and phone number for contact are also up there because here's what I want to tell you. Let's talk, all right? Let's talk. You may have questions about how do I handle this? How should I respond here? Man, I don't agree with you at all on this. And you said this, but I don't believe. Listen, let's talk. I would like to engage with your questions, your issues, either privately or also here church-wide. Because the questions you have are going to be questions that others have. I won't use your name and all that, right? But, but just know, let's talk in this series. Speaking the truth in love. Looking at this issue with as much clarity as we can in light of the gospel. And this morning only, coming back to one question. Is there a moral authority on this issue? And if there is, is that authority both true and, more importantly, good? Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to this issue and even begin to have the discussion about it begin to work as a church, as gospel-centered people, people who are interested in communicating both the grace and forgiveness and truth of the gospel message. May we be faithful to both speak the truth and to speak it in love. We understand our reputation broadly as the church. And in truth, mourn for that, struggle with that and wish that weren't true. And yet, as we move forward here, Father, help us with both humility and grace to own what is assigned to us, even if unfairly, to move people forward to greater human flourishing. May we remember that we serve this great God who was created in the beginning before there ever was anything else. And that we believe as Christians that you, God, created all of us to flourish and grow. And so where we struggle to embrace your views on things that are different than ours might prefer to be, 
may we remember not only what is true, but also why it is good. Give us courage and grace as we walk forward together. We pray this in Jesus' name.